If you've got your Bibles there, would you turn to Luke chapter 11, please? And I'm going to read from verse 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Luke 11, verse 14. One day, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. But some of them said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others trying to test Jesus demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He knew their thoughts, so he said, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I am empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says... I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds that its former home is all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they all enter the person and live there. And so the person is worse off than before. If you got a glimpse of soldiers in camouflage with rifles... Sneaking through the outlaying country villages of Tamworth. And if you notice military planes from another country flying overhead. And if you notice that the key political leaders in our country have disappeared or have been mysteriously assassinated. You might be correct to suspect that an invasion is coming. If bullets start flying and bomb sirens go off your suspicions would be fulfilled that another nation, call it a kingdom, is preparing to invade and conquer our kingdom. But what if that kingdom that is invading is a kingdom of a very different sort? What if the invasion is not one of force and brutality and aggression, but that invasion is one of kindness and compassion? What if sick people start getting well suddenly and inexplicably? What if there are news of alcoholics um, leaving their drink and becoming husbands, good husbands and fathers? And those teenage sons and daughters no longer partying until they're dropped, no longer sleeping around or taking drugs, but they become a joy to their parents instead of a constant worry. What if the poor and needy, the fatherless and the widow, are cared for and helped emotionally? and in practical ways otherwise unknown. Wouldn't these also be a sign of an invasion? A different sort of an invasion. The invasion of another kind of kingdom. Well, over the last six weeks we've been discovering 
that Jesus' message, his main message, key to everything, key to understanding the New Testament, is this message of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And it's this kingdom that Jesus speaks about, his kingdom, which has been called to invade our world. And we've been called to invade our world with mercy and compassion and with grace and with gentleness and with humility and with justice and with truth. And in doing so, we bring a little bit of heaven into this world now. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom, that it would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And therefore, every time a person is healed, or every time a person is released from the chains of the demonic, and every time someone chooses to bow the knee to Christ's authority, and every time an act of mercy is done in his name, a little bit more of heaven... The kingdom of heaven is invading earth. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus. It was launched, it was brought about. But it will be consummated at his second coming. On that occasion, as Paul writes, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, then the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. But you see, between that first coming and the second coming of Christ, there is a clash (coughs) of kingdoms. There's a clash of kingdoms. There's a clash between God's kingdom, which is the kingdom of his Son, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the evil one. And those two kingdoms could not be more diametrically opposed to each other. They're extreme opposites. You've got God who is eternally and infinitely good. Satan is a genius of extreme wickedness. And his handiwork is seen every time we turn on the television news or when we pick up a newspaper. God is truth. Satan is the father of lies. God is utterly faithful and Satan is a deceiver and a breaker of promises. God is all-powerful. Satan merely pretends that he is when he's not. And he does this by bringing fear into the hearts of people. And this cosmic battle is found throughout the Bible from the first book to the last book, from Genesis to Revelation. And it's found especially in the New Testament. And in the New Testament we find, particularly in the Gospels, many confrontations that Jesus had with evil powers. A child is thrown into suicidal convulsions. Jesus arrives and he draws out that invisible spirit that causes this child to behave in a very bizarre and heartbreaking way. The child is healed. A man lives amongst the tombs, cutting himself, refusing to wear clothing. Jesus arrives and draws out many evil spirits unseen. And this man's obscene behavior, which has been caused by them, he then sits clothed and in his right mind. Jesus said this, and we read it together a few moments ago. But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. But this story of Jesus liberating and healing individuals from oppressive evil spirits is not the whole story. 
As we look in the New Testament, the dominant opposition, I believe, arises not from dirty personal demons crouching in darkness, but the dominant opposition arises from dirty systems of power and violence operating in powerful people in the New Testament and being seen in broad daylight. And just in the way that Jesus draws out um, and exposes um, personal evil spirits who have contaminated individuals, Jesus does the same. And he draws out and exposes and names and rejects and banishes systemic evil, very often hidden beneath religious robes and royal crowns, hidden in temples and in palaces in the New Testament. You see, many Christians, when we ever speak about this subject of spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the the kingdom of darkness. Many Christians refer only to the effect of the demonic realm upon individuals. But just as uh, individuals can be affected by evil spirits and they can be contaminated, I believe also that spirits can also infect groups and systems of power. We've seen this in our world. Nazism and terrorism, where groups of people seem to be just taken over and driven in a perverse direction. And I believe that the very real powerful forces can enter whole groups of people and can guide them, can even control their behaviour. And under their influence, like Nazism, as I mentioned a moment ago, they can move as a people like a, a school of tuna or a flock of crows or a herd of wildebeest conforming to values that they would never ever have imagined if they'd been on their own. Psychologists have a word for this. It was a word which was invented in the 1970s by one psychologist and it's called groupthink. Although I imagine that probably most psychologists don't view this as a spiritual problem. I believe that Paul recognises this when he writes to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament and he writes these words. He writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And as we look at those verses before us this morning, it seems to suggest, or Paul seems to suggest, that he is believing in a hierarchy of demonic forces that can enter groups of people or systems of power. As I say with Jesus... He dealt with the individuals. But his greatest battle in the New Testament was against systems of power which seems to be um, contaminated in this spiritual cosmic battle. The two main visible, invisible uh, systems of power that oppose the, the kingdom of God in the New Testament are the Roman Empire and the religious elite. And Jesus confronts them head on. And although we don't read of Jesus casting out demons or any such like with these, the clashing of these two kingdoms, God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, is something that we are very, very aware of when we read the New Testament. A great example of this is the clash when Jesus meets Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor who brought fear to so many people. And in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, he is portrayed as a squalid character. He's manipulated by the crowds. He's pressurized by his wife. 
He's conflicted. He's paralyzed internally. He's fearful of making a decision until he really is forced to. And therefore, you, and then you have Jesus on the other hand who stands before him. He's flogged. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's bound. Waiting for Pilate to pass judgment. And unlike Pilate, Jesus is so utterly majestic. Pilate seems the insecure one. Jesus seems at peace. Powerful in his refusal to answer questions. Informing Pilate that Pilate can do absolutely nothing at all. He doesn't have that authority unless that authority was given to him from God. Jesus speaks of his kingdom as being not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. And if it had been an earthly kingdom, he would have followers who would fight to prevent him from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, so muddled. Jesus, so majestic. Pilate, pathetic. Jesus, quite magnificent. And nowhere is the clash of these two kingdoms better seen than in those hours which are leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's such a stark contrast here between the two kingdoms in comparison to the simple moral authority that Jesus had. The mighty power and authority of Rome just seems so grotesque and pathetic. Reminds me a little bit, and some of you will be old enough to remember this, in 1989, remember those students who stood in Tiananmen Square, stood before the tanks, and then Nelson Mandela in 1994, when he ascended from prison to presidency in South Africa, and in 1963, when Martin Luther King Jr. sat in a prison in Birmingham, Alabama, exercising greater moral authority and leadership while under arrest than all of the prison guards and police forces and governors. They, they thought they were in control, but he was exercising far greater moral authority. And those are just lovely, I think, illustrations of the kingdom. <coughs> A lovely illustration here of Jesus as he stood before Pilate. The other area that we witness this clash of the kingdoms is when Jesus confronts the religious elite. Jesus so infuriated them, he really did. He violates their taboos. He heals on the Sabbath. And then when Pilate presents Jesus before the crowds, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And even more scandalous than that, we have no king but Caesar. And I find that absolutely, utterly amazing. Faced with the kingdom of God, they choose the kingdom of Caesar, like so many people today. And then we have the most intense and critical moment of the two kingdoms clashing when Jesus hang upon the cross. The dominion of wickedness, the dominion of darkness, thought they had won when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But little did the demons of hell know that that was not a victory for Satan. That was Satan's greatest defeat. It is finished. That was God saying, Checkmate. Paul gives us a lovely verse in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing 
over them by the cross. That's a wonderful illustration. For behind this verse we have in ancient times a king who won a great battle would chain the remaining prisoners and then would make a a public spectacle of these prisoners by dragging them chained and naked through the streets of his kingdom. And Paul uses this analogy, this illustration, to depict Satan and his evil hordes being made a public spectacle, a laughingstock by the all-conquering king, Jesus. And how did Jesus win this battle? He won it through the cross. The writer to Hebrews with wonderful irony says that through death he destroyed him that had the power of death John writes in 1 John 3.8 the reason that the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and let us not forget that his victory is also our victory some people have asked me over the years if God has won then Why is Satan so apparently active in the world today? Why is there so much evil around? And to answer those questions, I would need to go back and to remind ourselves that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is both a present reality and a future reality. There's one day when that kingdom, when Christ returns, will come in its fullness. It was inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus, it will be consummated at the second coming of Jesus. And that's why we are to pray the prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, so if you thought about this, one day we will not need to pray that prayer any longer. Because that prayer will have come in its fullness when God's kingdom has come to earth. D-Day was in June 1944. It was when the Allies landed at Dunkirk. It was the beginning of the end of World War II. And after D-Day, the outcome of the Second World War was settled. There could only be one winner of the war. But that war continued for another 11 months, up until May 1945, and when we had VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And during the last months, there were many casualties. There was some severe fighting. But to all intents and purposes, the war had been won on D-Day the year before. Now for Christians, our D-Day is the death and the resurrection of Christ. That is when the war in the heavenlies was won. The enemy is not yet destroyed. The enemy is still capable of inflicting injuries. But he is disarmed, defeated and demoralized. And he knows that our VE day is coming when the war will be finally over when Jesus comes back again. And you see, between now and then, between that time when Christ came and the time he comes back, every time a person bows the knee to Jesus, every time a person is healed, every time a person is delivered from the clutches of Satan, every time when the poor are fed and the the naked are clothed, and every time when hospitality is shown in Christ's name, and every time... We provide water for the thirsty and show mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace. The kingdom of God is advancing. The outcome of this war is absolutely certain. And these present victories are just signs, they're tokens, signposts of that which is yet to come. So how does all of this affect us this morning? 
But firstly, the Bible teaches us that every human being is born into the kingdom where Satan rules. One of Satan's names in scripture is the God of this world. And when we turn over to Jesus, when we commit our lives to him, we switch allegiance. We are transferred from the kingdom where Satan is ruler to the kingdom where God is ruler. We invite Jesus to become our new commanding officer. And the clash of these two kingdoms will continue. And if you're a Christian, it will involve you too. You can't hide away. There are no conscientious objectors, as somebody said, in the kingdom of heaven. You've been enlisted. We have a role to play. Titanic battle in the heavenlies. Paul writes these words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10. Probably words which are quite well known by you. Paul writes, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. And I read that, and I read it again this week. I said to myself, what's that mean? What's that talking about? And I found the message translation particularly helpful. The message puts it this way. The world is unprincipled. It's a dog-eat-dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have, never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation. And what Paul is saying that I believe is that there is a wisdom. There is a wisdom in this world. It's the way the world at large looks at things. Out there it's dog-eat-dog. It's survival of the aggressors. Fight dirty to get what you want. Push yourself to the top. Never mind who you stand on to get there. Promote yourself. Be number one. Look out for yourself. Be first and foremost. You see, those are the values of the God of this world. But Paul says that we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have. Never will. And our weapons, kingdom weapons, include all the things that we have been learning over the last few weeks, particularly the last two weeks, when we have looked at the Sermon on the Mount, or the Kingdom Manifesto, as we've called it, those principles and those values, which are kingdom values, showing mercy, peacemaking, forgiveness, being prepared to suffer for doing what is right, Loving not just your friends, but loving your enemies as well. Turning the other cheek, going the second mile instead of seeking revenge. Seeking God's approval, not just not the approval of people. Not living for money, but prioritizing God. Choosing not to judge others. Because we recognize how fallible we are ourselves. Anticipating other people's needs, meeting them. Serving others in humility. Practicing what we preach. You see, the Christian way is the kingdom way. It is also the way of the cross. The kingdom way is the way of the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross daily and follow me. For some of them it meant a literal crucifixion. But for all of them, and for all of us too, it means a daily attitude of dying to ourselves. We are all human. 
But we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you start speaking to your neighbours or your work colleagues about the Christian faith, there are typical reactions. Some will glaze over and others will have their feathers ruffled. What's the reason for that? Why do they react in that way to the most wonderful, glorious message the world has ever known? Well, I think 2 Corinthians 4.4 might help us. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. For they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And the reason that we have there, that they're either apathetic on the one hand or antagonistic on the other, is because they have had their minds blinded. Their minds are a stronghold, says Paul. They're close to the truth. They're padlocked to the message of the gospel. The big question is, since we are in this cosmic battle, how is it that we break through those strongholds? Well, Paul says that we have weapons. We have weapons of our warfare, which are not carnal, as it says in the authorised version of the Bible. But we have God's weapons. We have God's tools. What do they include? Firstly, prayer. Do you remember that story in Mark chapter 9, on the occasion when the disciples couldn't remove a demon, an evil spirit that was causing a young lad to be dumb and Jesus came and he rebuked the evil spirit the spirit shrieked, the lad convulsed the spirit left the lad and, and he was healed later when the disciples were with, with Jesus privately they asked Jesus why couldn't we drive it out and Jesus replied this kind will only come out by prayer there's an old saying isn't there when we work we work but when we pray God works in James chapter 5 there's that great verse the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results prayer is a weapon of the kingdom another weapon of the kingdom is the message of the cross you see the, the, the weapons of our world very often include eloquence and superior wisdom and clever arguments and subtle persuasion. And Paul didn't want to know anything like that, even though he was a, an absolute brilliant intellectual. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with fear and with much trembling. You see, we must never lose the cross from being at the centre of the Christian faith. We must never lose the cross at being at the centre of our witness. It was worship leader Vicky Beeching who wrote those amazing words. May I never lose the wonder. The wonder of the cross, may I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy, and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. Uh, at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. And you see, if we lose the wonder of the cross, we will lose the message, God's message, a message that contains and carries God's power with it. And our message, 
will become just little more than a self-help advice or self-improvement skills with a religious twist. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power. The Greek word there is dynamis, from which we get dynamite. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. What else do we have in our weaponry? We have the scriptures. Jesus says in John chapter 8, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What sets people free? The truth. When Jesus was confronted by the devil in the wilderness, on three occasions he quoted from the scriptures. It is written, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And knowing that Satan had met his match, Satan departed. The question I've got for us today, if this wonderful book, the scriptures, is part of our weaponry, is part of what God has given us, to serve him within the world. How proficient are we? How much time do we give to reading it, to studying it, to memorizing it, to knowing it, to knowing the context of it? You see, I I, I believe that many people make a pig's ear of their lives because they haven't taken on God's wisdom for their lives. What else do we have? I believe the subject that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, living by the values of God's kingdom. You see, when we live our lives by the values of the kingdom, we will act as salt and light in, the, in, in, in society. We will bring God's flavor to the workplace. We make the gospel attractive to our friends at school. We provoke even the hardest hearts of those people who work in our factory to reflect on spiritual realities. We will enrich the lives of others in our family or community and we will shed his light into darkness and also to use the words of Paul here in 2 Corinthians 10 we will knock down those strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments in other words we will start getting through to them that's what he is saying there you see the clash of the kingdoms continues and we have been called to win others for Christ And we've also been called to stand against the injustice that we often see in our society. And we have to stand for justice and for mercy and for compassion. And we have to stand for being people of the light against systems of power as well, as Jesus did. Whether they're local or national or international, whether they're secular or even religious, declaring God's truth in kingdom ways as Jesus did. Well, I'm done today. It's a little bit of an unusual talk. And I felt that I couldn't leave this whole series this morning without dealing with something which is so obvious. The clash of the kingdoms. And whenever I speak on these subjects, it's not something I particularly look forward to. It's not in my top ten of favorite subjects or sermons. But I feel it's one which is vitally, vitally important that we understand, that we're aware of this. Jesus spoke about it. The Gospel writers declared it. Paul spoke about it. We see it in Acts, in the history of the early church, of those early times. And we too need to be very, very aware, not only of the personal nature of these things, but of the systems of power that can be contaminated too in this clash of the two heavenly kingdoms. 
But let me just finish this morning by reading to you the words of Paul who encountered this clash of the kingdoms in most towns and cities that he visited and you can read that through the book of Acts and he was a man who certainly knew what he was talking about a final word he says and it's my conclusion as well a final word be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power Put on all of God's armour so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armour so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil then after the battle you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armour of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere.